0: Hello, guys, and welcome to the 20th episode of Korea Startup Podcast. Today, like always, we have Lida. Hello. And we have our special (laughs) guest, Richard Wilson. Hello, Richard. Hi there. How How are you?
1: Good, thanks. Thanks for having me on today.
0: We are in an amazing office in Deloitte. Uh, The views are great. And (laughs) yeah, maybe you can start presenting a bit yourself, introducing, just for the audience to know, he's the executive director at Deloitte in Seoul. So yeah. Uh, Feel free to tell us about you. I'm Richard Wilson.
1: I originally uh, qualified as a lawyer in New Zealand. Uh, They call a barrister and solicitor. That's sort of the old traditional uh, British expression for uh, people who work either in an office or in in court. And in the beginning you can do both in New Zealand. Um, I I did that after uh, studying Korean and Mandarin in my BA days in, in university. And gradually, I ended up with a, a large number of Korean clients, um, sort of by word of mouth, and really enjoyed the kind of work and the variety. Um, I don't think I would have got that much variety if I'd sort of stayed in, in sort of one area. Um, and then as time went, I, I wanted to sort of do larger transactions and cases. And I'm, I moved over to Korea in 2004. Um, haven't really looked back. It's been exciting uh, it took me a while to find uh, sort of roles that I wanted to work in. I worked in-house in Hyundai, and Hyundai Steel, as well as in uh, a law firm that specialised in, in competition law and antitrust cases. And then um, I took some time to go to the UK for about three and a half years. That's when I got into the, the field, what was called e-discovery. Um, and particularly in there, I was doing a lot of document review to help law firms to sort of uh, save sort of time and money for their clients. And... Got to look at a large number of documents and some very uh unusual and interesting cases um some hilarious content and some scary content too you probably see some of that stuff come up on tv sometimes uh you know documents that they uh, they produce uh, in court that gets found out from emails text messages um even audio recordings and uh yeah, it was very interesting so coming back to korea with that it had really sort of opened my uh, horizons up a lot so, because that whole area has developed so much in Korea. So it's been a an exciting journey since that time, um, helping Korean law firms and, and global companies with that e discovery area. Now, now I'm in Deloitte where has the largest uh, e discovery practice in Korea, the longest
0: standing. So it's been a, it's been an exciting journey. Uh huh. You mentioned that before you came to Korea, you already had some relationships with Koreans and you like the the working style, no, or the the one that you imagined. Uh, when you arrived here, was it what you were expecting? Was it harder? Was it easier? How was the first time in Korea? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I worked a lot in the Korean community. Um, there was
1: probably a slight different vibe to the to the Korean, you know, people living in Korea that had probably gone to settle there, and the the types of cases were you know, somewhat smaller. Um, coming here. I mean, I got used to working long hours in New Zealand uh, because it was, there was quite a lot of work, um, but the probably getting more sort of in, into the actual culture, the corporate culture, mm-hmm. um, you know, the way that the companies are run sort of very top top down, top heavy, a lot of hierarchy and um, had to sort of get used to that, you know, being um, not so much a yes man, but more sort of just you know totally toe the line and not, uh, provide my opinion too much or my mm-hmm. feedback is just sort of take it and follow and run with it you know <laughs> that was one of the challenges uh, I've sort of gotten used to that and I get more opportunity now especially in Deloitte to sort of provide uh, some sort of an idea or a, some feedback uh, you know an angle on what they're saying but still it's uh, you know the Korean culture uh, has that sort of strong aspect of, of, of sort of Confucianism and uh, mm-hmm. senior sort of takes you know takes the stage and Mm-hmm. decides most of the things. So, yeah.
0: I guess also this like leadership and status has changed for you because now you're in a really top position. And I think we could feel it when we arrived to his offices. Everyone was looking at you like we were crossing <laughs> and they were like <laughs> looking at you like, hello, hello, no. you know. Like, so it feels that there is still this hierarchy. How does it feel to be the one that is in the top position and not the one that is in the low position?
1: That's actually a Very good question because um, after joining here, in particular, particular, I, di- I did notice that you know I had to sort of be at some of the receiving end of that sort of deference, and um, you know I get asked more about my opinion as well. But like getting used to sort of people being all you know nice and polite, <laughs> and, and mm-hmm. you know obviously you you don't want it to go to the head. It could happen, right? Um, and often what I've done is just quickly, for an example, um, my team that I, I run, I've always told them just just to call me by my first name. Um, okay. I used to do that in the companies I was in before, but I've sort of made, a, made an effort to encourage them to know really just, you know, call me Richard. Mm-hmm. Um, they still sort of tag on my title on the end of that, but it's... Um, and also, I always try to let them you know open up the floor for them to share their views their ideas uh, i want them to sort of brainstorm it and really flesh out ideas before there's any sort of lid put on something you know mm-hmm. before it's sort of like okay that's the way it's going to go I, I try to let the, that idea develop um, because they've got a lot of experience most of them have got way more experience in e-discovery than i have i've got about five years or so and so yeah it's it's a real um i have to keep reminding myself that just sort of let it glide, you know, help them feel easygoing and mm-hmm. uh, because they're very diligent anyway. So mm-hmm. it's a, it's an interesting juggle.
0: Uh, it's a fine line. I have to walk. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So how would you define like an effective leadership, especially in your position? Um, so generally it's
1: uh, for a long time I've had this sort of idea. I got it from Stephen R. Covey. uh mm-hmm. But like you know, he he talks about um, you know you you lead people, you manage things and lead people, and I try to sort of keep that in mind, even though I didn't have any leadership roles until <laughs> when I was working in, in London on some review projects I managed. But the thing is, is it's to sort of keep in mind respect that people have their own ability to to sort of manage themselves, and uh, really treat them like humans and sort of guide them, so because they you know they just need a sort of a, a pathway so they can fulfill their objectives or the company's objectives um, respect their sort of intellect and 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 build that let them feel that you do respect it, it takes a bit of time because a lot of people I worked with when I first started here were kind of shy and you know very hmm. nervous about you know being you know they were sort of used to sort of they want perhaps used to the sort of the culture the way things get you know directed to them and dictated maybe sometimes in general it's it's I guess it's kind of still big here in Korea but that's one of my main principles. Um, and also ask more questions than, than t- you know, telling. Uh, I mean, I've got a lot of ideas and views on how things have been done in and, and, and global law firms, and, mm-hmm. but it's a more about sort of t- teasing it out of them, you know, asking them. They, most people seem to deep down have a lot of answers, um, and it's more about guiding and training them to be more, uh, get into the habit of, of bringing that out instead of tucking it away. Mm -hmm. That's one of my main points, I guess.
0: And Do you think that has changed since you arrived to Korea till now, this leadership style or hierarchy? Um, Oh, you're right in the beginning.
1: So yeah, I think it has a lot. There's been a lot of things, um, both just sort of overseas influence generally over time, but also there's been sort of incidents, things that have happened in Korea, Hmm. Uh, you know, the the going out and having dinners, the know, culture here Hmm. has really changed both sort of based on budgets, available budgets, and (laughs) as well as, um, you know, there's those things like the Me Too uh, movement, um, you know, things like that. There's been cases of, you know, sexual harassment and and those things have sort of dampened the original, uh, you know, concrete hard sort of, you know, men rule sort of dominate Mm -hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, people have sort of learned sort of to step back a bit and, and try to, you know, respect uh, juniors a lot more, younger people or, you know, people that are new to the company. But it's still on a journey. It's still a path, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And regarding being a foreigner, because it's, it's weird to see mm. a foreigner in a top position in Korea. I think nowadays we see more, but it still is something difficult. So how did you manage to arrive to this position, and is it something that people are surprised by
1: Um, It's an interesting question, really, because there's lots to that. Um, Firstly, for myself, yeah, when I came here, I noticed that there were certain, uh, you know, top roles in in even some Korean companies like LG, for example, often had, uh, you know, a few people in leadership positions that were very high up, Mm -hmm. and that was partly, say, some uh, LG Display had a a JV with with Philips, and they had some um, Dutch leadership as well as some American um and then of course the global companies here right Uh, it has changed it's become more more common with sort of joint leadership and that um for myself uh to be able to accept you know that it's not only possible uh but possible for myself to sort of open that sort of doorway in my own mind Mm -hmm. and i think this is a common, a general principle that apply to anybody in anybody's life and many different things is, uh, you know, something going from from A to B or C or D allows not just the the steps, but actually to really allow in your own mind, it sounds a bit fanatical, but to allow in your mind, uh, firstly, that absolutely the possibility that it can be. Mm -hmm. And then you sort of somehow find your way uh, there, it just somehow I've found that so many ways in my life, yeah. Uh, different steps that I've taken that have, uh, when I look back, it seemed to be actually larger than I, mm-hmm. uh, turn out, yeah, to be quite, quite um, surprising. But I get, yeah, I get people asking me, um, how, did you, how did you get there or um, how is it for you? And even myself, I mean, the work uh, I do from day to day, a lot of the work I have to do is in Korean emails, mm-hmm. communicating, being in meetings, it's pretty much mostly in Korean. So sometimes I'm also perhaps overwhelmed in a sense occasionally, or just sort of look back and think, oh, you know, can I really do this? How did I manage to be able to do some of this? Mm -hmm. And still obviously learning, still struggling. Um, I think pretty much any sort of opportunity that comes our way and that we're able to take is often slightly above us. Uh That's a bit philosophical, but... Um, You know, any sort of role or opportunity or door opening, it's often a bit above us. And it's sort of like a a sort of a stretch for us. We have to somehow stretch and grow into that. Uh, And fortunately, by some sort of uh, good fortune or whatever you want to call it, we're at least uh, given the chance quite often to step, at least step into that and and able to take that step. And then you grow. Uh, It takes whatever you have plus some other Willpower and and and, and um, just I don't know, holding on for dear life <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. to get there.
0: Yeah, I think like mentality plays like a really crucial role in this situation. though. to be able to achieve something that looks impossible, if you believe that you cannot do it, you will never do it. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Oh yeah,
1: you can easily um, close the door on opportunities or things that come your way. Yeah, truly mm-hmm. Or you can you can try to reach out to them, reach up to them, I suppose. Yeah, it's hugely, I think it's mostly the mind. Uh Um, Having the experience is is valuable, but then Mm -hmm. you can certainly miss that without making the link mentally first.
0: And how do you deal with conflicts or like difficult personalities in the work, like workforce in general, the workplace? Do you have any specific strategy?
1: Um, Yeah, it's often, in the situation it can be Depending how deep you are involved in that conflict, but it can vary from being manageable to being, you know, very very hard. Um, from, the, I suppose, a general strategy is again, it comes to mindset, and it comes to sort of being able to step back mm-hmm. away from the uh, so sort of the personalities, including your own. And remember, you know, what's, what's the, what was the desired result? Usually conflict comes from what people wanting to get somewhere, uh, and they might have different ways about it, uh, perhaps. But stepping back, looking at what's the desired result, seeing perhaps what's uh, compromisable. There's usually mm-hmm. some negotiables in there that can be compromised and, and things that cannot be. And that might often, what I found, that sort of guided the, the path a little bit, like you know, things that we cannot uh, allow and things we can. Sometimes those, those things obviously get up with, jumbled up with emotion.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: it's, about, if it's, if it's if I'm in a leadership situation in that, in that setting, which I have been in several cases, is to sort of help people sort of uh, you know see what we can give up. You know these things don't matter as much, even if we're used to them thinking they are. But then others, you know, rules, regulations, you know, privacy or other things, uh, that can sometimes guide us. We just say, okay, you know, this is uh, we don't 100% own this. Or we have to allow this to form, you know, mm-hmm. stepping back. Yeah. The other thing I find is it's very similar, but um, it's, you know, often it's sort of people's way of uh, dealing with problems. Uh, human nature tends to be to, to attack the person rather than the problem. But if everyone gives a chance to really do step back and look at the problem together, then that can help to diffuse things and move forward
0: how many people are you leading nowadays in your position so my team
1: uh, the discovery team is uh, there's 16 uh, people there Uh full-time and they are sort of various levels of uh, senior management down to
0: what we call consultants Mm -hmm. and uh, yeah and how do you foster a positive and productive work life because sometimes it's really difficult as you were saying before like to combine or like a middle point between being nice to be productive you no know? sometimes people get too comfortable when everything <laughs> is so nice so how do you sometimes are like okay I'm nice with you I'm your friend but also you have to work you have to be efficient
1: that's a really good question well phrased um, that's one of the challenges i found as uh, i've sort of been given more sort of uh, you know ch- chances to lead teams even in the uk and, he, and now here, um, initially, I sort of wanted to establish rapport and, and a sense of uh, camaraderie, friendship. Mm-hmm. You know, lower the sort of the sense of hierarchy. Um, but yeah, that has been a. I've had to really find that fine tuning away from that mm-hmm. sometimes. Um, it can be. I think the best way, and what I've found works, is to uh, just. It's it's all subtle and it's and it's very nuanced from from day to day in in a, in a given situation. Um, given my team members, they're, they're all um, Korean, um, you know. They're 90- all Korean? Yeah, they're all Korean. Wow. Yeah, like wow. Uh, some of them have studied overseas or grown up overseas. Um, they're all ethnic Korean. Um, and they've got that, that sense of, you know, that you know that Nunchi concept, right, of mm. sort of reading the room, and we might call it, I don't know what else we can call it, but <laughs> they're sort of good at that. Um, and so uh, on, that, on one sense, I try to be careful never to sort of, give them uh, a sense of unnecessary nootchy about things mm-hmm. that aren't important. And on the other hand, to be very subtle, uh, when, say, things aren't acceptable, they can sort of pick it up. You know, they mm. can, I can sort of phrase things in certain ways and, and e- express things. But, yeah, that's a very important thing. Um, again, I've, I've seen them sort of work uh, so hard, and, and they seem to have this very long track record long before I got here. So I have to let them feel that I value that and that's how I want things to go. But another part of leadership is sort of to help tweak or innovate, you know, the way they might be doing things to sort of benchmark from global best practices. Uh, I had a trip recently over to to New York, to New Jersey and Tennessee where we've got our data center and our review centers and sort of pick up on the best practices and bring that back and not Mm -hmm. say, right, now, you know, this is the way it should be done. What are you doing with it? You know, but to sort of just mention that you know reiterate that i've been there the what we've learned just sort of present it and then say okay what what things from here can we sort of adopt you know how can that fit into our situation Mm -hmm. and often i've had slight pushback because they've found what works best in korea with korean companies and that's very important other ways it's been you know uh yeah let's uh let's sort of move on from our comfort zone and, and adopt some of these others that do work and so it takes, a, it takes a
0: lot of subtlety. Uh-huh. I can imagine. Is there any time that you had to face a really challenging situation leading your team?
1: Um, yeah, like, so our team, I mean, you know, from day to day, we have a lot of different types of cases coming up. Um, and it's all about sort of allocating resources. Um, one of the big things that but they're used to is you know, the very long hours, sometimes things crop up, the client changes their request, or, you know, this is pretty common. Mm-hmm. But that means that they might have to work instead of um, till 1am, it might be till 3am sometimes. <sighs> and I'm, I find that really hard, I can't push them. Uh-huh. So I always have to phrase things the way, you know, in terms of deadline, in terms of, you know, what we need. Um, but an- another example was uh, when I was in London on a, managing a, a large review, a very large arbitration case, and there was, you know, masses amounts of documents. This is in the the millions of documents. That doesn't mean we have to review them though, but um, the ones that are filtered down by search results, and when we remove all what we call the junk data, the spam emails and totally irrelevant Mm. stuff, we call that junk data. After removing that, there's still a lot. Um, We had a team of five reviewers uh, with all varying levels of experience. And one of them was actually still a student in, in law school. They didn't ha- requ- weren't required to be a, 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 a UK qualified or any qualified lawyer as such, but had studied law because the rest of the team was able to cover the rest of that. But um, um, through the project, uh, she was very, um, you know, asking me a lot of questions about each document because I was sitting right side her to sort of uh-huh. train her on using this platform that we use. And uh, each of the others I could see was sort of pacing it pretty quick through the documents. Um, she was very what the uh, upper management was saying was was slow. But what I could empathize from my own experience was that in the beginning, you want to take each document quite seriously, because if you mm-hmm. mess it up, you provide the wrong documents It can can be bad at the end of the day. So I could I realized that yeah, she was going through the same pain mm-hmm. of, of agonizing over every document and then asking me to make a sort of a call on is this relevant? Is it not? That kind mm-hmm. of thing. So um, in the beginning, I wasn't really helping her because I, w- I wasn't actually really helping her because I was sort of in a let it, you know, she she was asking me to make all the decisions on these documents, and she wasn't sort of stepping forward and making that growth step. So I, ha- I was encouraged to sort of let her make the calls, and I could see then it was harder for her, and then she moved on ahead and became a very a re- a quicker reviewer, uh, you know, she would Look at a document and have a very quick sense of what it was about very fast, and became
0: a very a capable uh, mm-hmm. document reviewer. So, yeah, maybe for the audience, because for me it was the first time that we heard about mm-hmm. uh, e-discovery. Uh, could you explain a little bit more what is it about?
1: Yeah, sure. So what I mentioned was um, sort of somewhat at the core of what we call e-discovery. The word uh, so reviewing the actual documents that we collect for the cases, whether mm-hmm. it's an arbitration or an investigation or anything else.
0: Can well, you put like a, a, a practical example to understand it better? Yeah, sure. to situ- like of a
1: company. <laughs> yeah, right. So um, the wo- I'll just quickly mention. Um, so the word discovery comes from a, a US uh, system of uh, where. Uh, in, in a litigation, both sides of the, of the, you know, both parties in a, in a case are, are required to share relevant documents with each other, relevant uh, information about that case, mm-hmm. which is kind of contrary to what we would expect. Why show your, absolutely, doc? Yeah, it's like <laughs> this is your strategy. You're going to use that in court. You know, at the last minute, right? But the the system generally requires that everyone exchange the documents, right? So it could be, for example, uh, it could be like uh, uh, some com- American company that's made a product and uh, consumers are claiming that they they got they suffered injury or you know it, it maybe it, it damaged uh some of their property or themselves hurt them some way so then uh the uh, company would be required if they were sued
0: to then share uh, all the documentation that's related to that case with and how it. do you know if that company is gonna give those documents or they're just gonna give another ones that are not relevant
1: right so what happens the the system is, has become very strict so these documents absolutely must be disclosed in good faith. So they have, they are absolutely required to share all relevant documents. If they hide a document, mm. or they burn mm. it, destroy it, or just don't uh, disclose it, they can be fined. Uh, they can be also uh, awarded damages. By, you know they have to pay the other other parties legal uh, legal fees, and that could be in the millions. Oh. Li- millions of dollars of legal yeah. fees. Yeah. Uh, yeah and there's been a lot of cases like this recently it's been happening there's been one in the uk uh, not long ago where um one of the parties uh, sort of disclosed very very shoddily didn't do a very careful review of their documents and just handed over a, a lump of docs that weren't relevant mm. um and then they were fined like Thirty million pounds in oh f- in legal fees oh, and fine. Wow! And
0: yeah. So that's where you enter. No, you say, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna revise everything. <laughs> yeah. Don't worry about it. No? Yeah, exactly. Literally. <laughs> so there's a few steps
1: there, but the the, the core has been you know people uh, that are you know not necessarily full time employed in a law firm, but they're brought in on a on a contract contract based called contract document reviewers. That's been the, that's the core of sort of these of this e discovery process because. About 70 percent of the of the fees involved in e-discovery. It's a quite an expensive process, as you can imagine, um, going through millions of documents, right? Um, mm-hmm. So the reviewers are a big part of that, and then the other part now is is more so as the technology mm-hmm. to to dig into the data where we we use is called tech-assisted review T A R or TAR. Um, this technology has become quite advanced because it's learning from the reviewers, you know, what's relevant, what's not. It sort of it sort of mimics these decisions and we can use these AI models. We now apply these AI models alongside the reviewers. So they it starts to mimic and then it finds more relevant documents and puts okay. them at the top of the pile. So then the reviewers can start with those documents instead of just digging through you know, mm-hmm. millions of pages of spam emails and, and other. So this TAR, this tech-assisted review process, uh, ends up sort of cutting down from you know let's say there was a million documents in the data a million emails and attachments and everything which is quite insane um, that's not uncommon but starting with that many documents uh traditionally what they call linear review just going from a to z mm-hmm. uh, now uh, they can do the, you apply this tar uh, and it can reduce the document pool from a million down to about uh hundred thousand or or forty thousand documents but is this tr- is it trustful like do you think it's not skipping any relevant documents it's a very good question yeah this, this is a concern a lot of the, the legal counsel that haven't worked on this uh area uh and and just general yeah in the in the public are, are concerned about i was quite skeptical myself but i've actually seen the platforms that we use uh one in particular we use is called brain space mm-hmm. what this does is it's uh, designed so you can train the uh, based on actual documents. So you go through, you load the data as you normally would ready to review it mm-hmm. uh, manually. And then you go and do some actual uh, searches to find the most likely relevant documents. And then those documents, you go through and, and code them as relevant or not relevant. Mm-hmm. And what that does is it immediately, uh, you know, trains the model. It so learns, yeah. And then that mm-hmm. model uh, is sort of a rough, very mechanical, you know, uh, clunky version of, 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 of review decisions, mm-hmm. right. Um, but as you go, and usually you bring in experts as well, expert, uh, subject matter experts on the area. So if it's an intellectual property case, it might be a certain type of patent, and it's been infringed. So you would bring in the people that know the technology, as well as maybe some patent attorneys together. And then they train this model and fine tune it. Mm-hmm. And it takes about, you know, the more rounds, the better, you'd normally yeah. review about 20 documents first. You get a model. You go back through it again. And then what that does is that, that'll dig up more relevant, more support, potentially relevant documents, right? And then you'll go through what is called a training round. And then uh, the more the documents, as it brings them up, then you'll say, yes, that's relevant. No, that's not. What that does is it gives feedback to the train to the uh, the AI model. And that AI model becomes sharper. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. But it takes about, it's recommended, about five to 10, could be 15 training rounds. Yes,
0: I understand, okay. okay and then okay, it
1: okay. could become sharper. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of the day, once that training round, that though, sorry, the AR model, uh, as it's given the chance to run, it has a certain confidence uh, level, right? A level of confidence that, you know, uh-huh. like say it's 95% accurate. The courts and some of these tribunals where documents are being submitted from the discovery process, um, those tribunals uh, have certain protocols on the level of confidence Uh, that they'll allow so they're not expecting they'll actually allow this technology courts in america are now allowing the use of this technology because they know what it is and they know like myself that are certified to use it Mm -hmm. they have adopted uh the approach that you know the traditional e-discovery is so expensive right it can cost Tens, mm. hundreds of millions, and oh six months to a year. It could take a, could take a year, oh two years. Goodness. I sat on reviews in London, which went for like
0: two, three years, which okay. I joined partway through some of them. Which is, sorry, the, the biggest project that you have worked on case, related to yeah. this?
1: Um, let's see. There was one that was in London. I, I can't go into all the details, but it was a media, sports media uh, matter, and it involved, um, you know, allegations of, um, you know, bribery and, and also anti-competitive behavior uh-huh. like actually com- you know the way they competed against others Wow and that went on for about three and a half years Holy! and that's in the day when they were using well, all manual you know reviewers right that's
0: a good customer right eh? <laughs> very good customer good client yeah, yeah. Oh,
1: wow. there's still some of these equivalents now uh-huh. uh, what happens more so now is using these tar you know mm-hmm. so the, there's less linear that they were doing less sitting there and just clicking on every document Mm -hmm. Um, reviewers loved it because um, you know if they're looking at just spam a lot of spam emails they could just you know chat with their buddies and in in the in the review room and have a great time you know it's very easy reviewing just you know you might look at about you know 20 of these in a day and then maybe 50 spam emails or or in an hour right Uh but now uh, it cuts all the spam out uh, and clients are much happier because think about going from you know 100% of the documents say a million down to about say, I don't know, five percent of those documents now Crazy. that are that are regarded as potentially relevant. You still have to reviewers will still go through them. Mm. So it hasn't taken over the role of a reviewer. You know, it's yeah. driven by humans.
0: And do you think it will reach a point in which the AI or this technology is going to do everything? It's
1: but it's possible because um, you can see what's happening through say, say Jet TP or yeah. Jet TP or these other um, uh, platforms. Um, in time, but the the amount of accuracy is still, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the documents are so different from one to another, from, a, from any given case, but I think the level of accuracy as it goes up, yeah, you'll have less, you know, human reviewers, but this whole industry was sort of created because of data and because of uh, litigation, mm-hmm. and the amount of data, that's the other side of the picture, is exploding, you know. Data is uh, exploding exponentially. Um, we're now at the point where, f- um, compared to the dawn of civilization, and the amount of information that was created from then until now, data is growing o- more than that every two days.
0: I saw a video in YouTube that it represented, like with a with an image, how much data is collected each day and each year. And it's completely like that, like it's now like exponentially growing mm-hmm. crazy. Oh, it is, it is. Wow. Um, a company's data will, on average, double
1: every two years. Um, it'll double in, in, in volume. And that means that that data, and they don't know what IT departments, uh, the, we've surveyed a lot of IT departments uh, from Deloitte, and we've found that um, you know those departments don't really know what's in their data. They don't know uh, what to do with that data either, how to, how to control it, because it's just out of control. You know Pre- you can't just go in there and delete it all it's regulated yeah so that in that data there is a lot of uh, content that's very risky if it gets mm. leaked uh, accidentally or hacked out or exposed in an investigation by the government or in a court case then it's extremely damaging so as yeah. that data doubles the risk uh, of you know exposure to that company is, is, is growing
0: exponentially yeah i heard that data is going to be the new gold it's going to be like the, the key of every business and actually like, i also heard the other day um, that tesla is not actually a car manufacturer it's a data company oh, because sense. it's like each time a car a tesla car is being driven yeah. it records the place yeah. for like autonomous uh, driving. driving things so like every company has a second part that is just data and it's so powerful absolutely yeah that's the
1: big thing isn't it it's, uh, iot the internet mm-hmm. of yes. things we're in that industry as well, and um, we help you know companies manage their you know factory data, their you know the device data as well. Every mm-hmm. single uh, device and, and thing these days is turning into a, oh, yeah, a, a yeah. sensor or something, right? So mm-hmm. that's the other area. So mm-hmm. it'll always require people uh, to drive it. Um, you know the volumes of data are going to grow. So even if AI tools are used, they're not humans. They're not um, totally intelligent, right? like a, the way the humans think they're not a mind they're not so it's always jet. going. To, what's it jet <laughs> like <laughs> jet, yes. not
0: yet but maybe the not next f- generation they believe in in ai more than in human beings yes gradually that's right mm-hmm. they will it's yeah. in the movies right it's so. risky. <laughs> risky it <laughs> is
1: it's part of the thing we like uh, elon musk said we've sort of got to preempt it we've got to anticipate it probably learn more about ai and how to use it <clears throat> Uh, rather than being run by it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And what did you want to become when you were uh, when you were a kid? Like when you were younger? Because this is not like a really usual job that you could like go for it. So I- I'm curious.
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Actually, I mean, in in primary school, elementary school, I mean, it was completely different. Right? The usual, the fireman, the 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 doctor, or whatever else. Mm. Um, and I didn't really have, I guess, an idea, but when, when I was in high school, I, st- I sort of started getting into computers. I'd sort of been, you know, I'd been reading books about it uh, just before that point, like in middle school. I used to, you know, this company used to come around and offer a, an order a catalog, you know, thing we could order these books and I'd get the robot ones and the computer ones, the lasers and that. Um, by the time I was in high school, I sort of thought, I might, I think I'd like to work with computers. I don't know how, I didn't understand them, uh-huh. but I
0: just sort of liked them. Got my own little basic one. That's weird. When whenever like usually when you like something, you're good at it, no? Yes. Oh, oh yeah. It's the rule, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I think that's
1: the. They say if you love what you do, you never have to work a day in your life. Mm. And does that, it?
0: that this happen to you? Like, do you love what you do?
1: I do. I really like it. I uh-huh. love it. I mean, it just every day. Um, one of the things that I find as a measure, I think, of how I feel kind of successful about my career, is that the work that I'm doing here. It pieces together just about everything I've been learning in the last...
0: Oh, that's amazing.
1: 10, that 15, feeling is amazing. Oh, it's just amazing. It's, huh. It surprises me. It's almost blood co- uh, chilling in, in terms of, you know, oh, that's, you know, I've been learning about these things or, you know, I've sort of covered that area and, and I never thought I'd be involved in it anymore. Now it's all coming together again. It's, it's mm-hmm. just incredible. Uh, uh-huh. It's exciting.
0: So I guess that to become uh, the executive director of Deloitte, you first have to have a really uh, impressive career on your back, right?
1: Yeah, th- th- it's sort of a requirement um, you, to bring sort of things together. And, you know, there's a ro- lot required in terms of uh, shaping direction here, mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, sensing the market and, 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 and anticipating you know anything that the clients uh, need, anticipating that, being ready to... To answer their needs um, requires a sort of a, a certain amount of, you know, behind experience, I guess, and bringing that together, and it, it draws on those uh, things. I mean, there's, there's a lot more for me to learn. Uh, there'll always be sort of a learning journey, I, I think. But yeah, it's about sort of shaping that more than it's. You know, I worked in Deloitte many years ago here in Yoido, and the whole experience to me is is almost completely different. Uh, before it was sort of uh, not sort of handed me on a plate, but it was you know, day-to-day work was sort of take care of this, get this done, and obviously the role that I had was very different. But the overall experience, the way that uh, I can see how Deloitte has evolved and um, the way they you know develop people and you know these things, the outlook, the expectations are
0: are sort of a, a refreshing challenge each day. You know. What would you say are the most crucial skills or abilities that someone has to have to become uh, a top position in a consultancy firm? Um, I think
1: a lot of it's, um, you know, there's obviously some sort of a, a specialty or two uh, mm-hmm. that could be technical, it could be, you know, it could be legal, it could be, it you know, could be some sort of technical area, but there's a huge amount of it, I think it's soft skills, it's being able to interface with with your people, you know, uh, guiding and harnessing their talent, the people around you, other departments. Uh, a lot of sort of a, being able to interface smoothly with other divisions and mm-hmm. and what the way they might think. And how yeah. do you how you how do you train those software skills? It it pr- it probably comes over time, but uh, I think learning about you know all the take all the opportunities you can for like any courses on you know communication or. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know even leadership even if you're not in a leadership role you can sort of treat it in a way like leadership also the obviously the way people's uh, thinking changes over time so sort of obviously keeping with that but yeah I think it's about there's just so many layers to to the soft skills side of things I think now uh, but anything that sort of helps you to you know it's about motivating people it's about um, in, a, in a way sort of There's a certain amount of negotiation you know you Mm. you're always sort of in certain levels of negotiation with various people around you and 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 even indirectly right without verbal without mentioning right you're walking through a subway you're maneuvering around places Mm. there's lots of subtle sort of interactions but i think it's that it's not acknowledging that in, in in different ways whether it's verbally uh you know written
0: communication or anything like that yeah. Also something that impressed me a lot about your profile, I follow you in LinkedIn and I see that you are constantly posting, I, I finished this course, I did this <laughs> course, like it's, it's really impressive that in the job that you are right now you have time to continue learning and doing courses. Do you find that's a really important part of your job?
1: Yeah, I think it's crucial. Um, I couldn't overemphasize how important it is to keep up with the times, uh, to soak up learning opportunities. I think we always have some sort of learning opportunity, whether it's in our job or it's in our community. Um, it could be on TV. I mean, there's you know LinkedIn. There's all those, those different places where you can you can take courses. Um, I mean, to me, it's sort of like it's a stretch because I'm swamped with a lot of other various types of work for the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's either meetings or it's admin or it's uh, other things like that, and trying to keep fit as well. But I, th- I somehow. I prioritise it as well, and I seem to be able to make time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, what I like here is that I'm, you know, supported in that learning journey. I'm encouraged, and also, mm-hmm. you know, we
0: have a certain amount of available funding for us to to learn things. So I mm-hmm. I soak that up. <laughs> Maybe the last, the last topic that we would love to know about is your negotiation skills. For example, when you were working in Hyundai Steel, you, I see LinkedIn that you were involved in deals of $5 billion. So yeah. I want to know, like what is your negotiation style and what for you are the crucial things in negotiation?
1: Um, although I suppose my negotiation approach... And styles probably it's obviously evolved and changed over time uh, mm. it's sort of a it's sort of an intangible thing I And mean, depending on uh, which country I guess it also changes right yeah the country the the context German I because a lot of the negotiation I went on were either uh, you know the company visiting us in in Korea or we going to say so mm-hmm. to China to Paris to Germany and, and negotiate with these these engineering companies steel companies things like that um, I think it's all about stepping away from that hard nosed you know, traditional way of, you know, I'm a, you know, don't mess with me, uh, I'm, I'm a tough bargain, mm-hmm. I'll, you know, flatten you and, and I'm gonna get my want no matter what. Sort of, traditionally it was sort of conveying that image so that you could sort of be a hard, you know, so that they would try to uh, appease you because if they wanted to get something, you know, a deal. Mm-hmm. But now it's totally different. It's like trying to sort of uh, allow everyone in the room to feel, uh, you know, secure and, and, and open it's strangely enough to brainstorm you're mm-hmm. actually mm-hmm. more in a brainstorming exercise together uh, and and assuring each other that nothing they say is either stupid or will go against them you know that will be kept against them as a note against them but it's a sort of a way to explore uh, a journey together and that can be you know beneficial mm-hmm. um, another way of putting it but on a sort of a, uh, sort of a more analytical approach in economics, one thing I learned when I did law and economics in law school, is just one course that I did. They talk about this thing called Pareto efficiency. And hmm. it's simply that you know both parties can sort of compromise on something that they don't really need. Hmm. Uh, both parties can come into that negotiating room and their company, once they go back to their decision makers, or there'll be things that they can compromise that'll be beneficial to the other party. And so it's learning about what those are and learning what they can also, uh, yourself and also they can compromise and also their underlying position, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the thing that's always taught in, in, in these classes is to know what their deep underlying position is. It's like, a, like an iceberg. Mm-hmm. So 90% or 80% is underwater. Yeah. But it, the more you know about that and yeah, coming together and um, sort of crafting a brand new outcome that's refreshing for everybody and yeah. uh, also meets the bottom line.
0: Yeah, I guess like a big part is understanding what they want also, right? What the other party wants. How do you prepare for a negotiation? What's the process?
1: A lot of it is um, be research. You'd have to sort of find out about the actual people coming into the room and then, you know, the company as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, knowing about the company's sort of uh, objectives and, you know, who's steering that company can, can be a big part of that. You know, who's driving the decisions and... Um, you know, you, whatever research you can find, there's there's a lot of services these days where you can uh, delve into the, the deeper mechanics of a company and their people mm-hmm. and, and the media and, and just knowing that and getting a picture, which might be different from what you assumed. Yeah. And also, obviously, knowing um, this might seem very obvious, but knowing your own position, your company's position, and what are the real risks, what things cannot be compromised, those things can be overlooked. You can go into the negotiation, think on the commercial bottom line, but there might be some very serious uh, legal uh, non-negotiables that can actually get dropped in that negotiation and really hurt the company. Mm-hmm. So downstream, the company's not actually getting a bargain, but actually setting themselves up for a major, you know, it could mm-hmm. be litigation, it could be a, a breach, you know, regulatory issue. So it's knowing your your position in there is really well. It takes a bit of research.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. Maybe the, the last question that we always ask to all our guests is if you could recommend one source of learning. It can be an author, it can be a book, a podcast, anything that you usually... Yeah, a course. Okay, um, good question. <laughs> I, mean,
1: um, I mean, I've mean, i drawn a lot from Stephen R. Covey. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I used to listen to his, uh, like, the recordings of the seminars he gave to, say, IBM or other, um, these courses he runs. So I sort of, because I listen to that over and over, it's sort of part of, I don't know, what he called the software of my head in a way. Uh-huh. That would be one. But if if you can also get into like, you know, in LinkedIn, there's those uh, LinkedIn learning. Uh, Do you recommend them? They're good. Yeah. Yeah, they're okay. great. Because there's so much there. You will find uh, anything you want to learn there. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, those are, those, are, those are a few. I mean, YouTube's obviously another great one. You have to filter out, you know, yeah. the best stuff and, and not the best. But, um, yeah, there's others I would recommend, but these are not about business. Um, it's more about, um, I study sort of about uh, mysticism as well. So that's another sort of a area of part of where I get some of the soft uh, skills is uh, I study about sort of uh, what's called Kabbalism. Uh, hmm. It's an ancient sort of a, a, a Hebrew mysticism. And the way that underpins with other, uh, it's sort of the roots of a lot of civilizations in different parts of the world. And I've been studying that for about 15 years now as well, very, very gradually, you know, not in a serious way. But that gives me a lot of perspective in life Uh and uh, the way things connect. So in terms of, um, that's something I'd encourage someone to learn about that. Um, And also, uh, (laughs) what I'd say overall Find something that actually refreshes you that um, deep down clears your um, anxieties and your past traumas. It could be yoga. It could be, I do very basic yoga. Mm -hmm. So day to day, you can really have a different life if you clear the things that are subconscious that kind of interact and affect your decisions unknowingly. Mm -hmm. If you clear those out and become the real you, you will go very far.
0: How do you collect all the all the learnings that you acquire and, like, crystallize them or, like, you know, put them, I don't know, in order to check them back? <laughs> um,
1: it's, it's sort of been a long journey, but, like, learning these things gradually um, over time, anything that we learn, anything mm-hmm. that we become good at, it becomes subconscious. That's uh, like, you know, when you drive a car or ride a bike, right? Mm-hmm. You're doing it totally subconsciously if you're doing it well. So I guess the fact that sort of having learned these things really gradually over a long time. And and crucially, and the way we remember and learn is is, is it makes sense or it, it connects with what else you've learned. And I've found um, amazing patterns in, in, in leadership and, you know, the mysticism I mentioned or, you know, bits of Buddhism or, um, you know, these other areas, they just seem to sort of gel. Mm-hmm. And it, it makes more sense to me. It's more real than just... Um, say a little, uh, say a little uh, principle that you might learn, and say, "Yeah, that sounds good," and, and not really embrace. Uh-huh. So I guess, in a way, subconsciously, maybe these things have probably gelled in a very uh, holistic way. Maybe um, mm-hmm. that's part of it. Yeah, mm, it's it's hard to put a finger on that, but <laughs> yeah, that's probably probably how I'd put it, I guess. And then trying to apply them. Mm. Uh, It's not what we know, but it's how we feel about what we know. that really makes it a livable thing. The thing we can actually do, uh, it's how we feel. Um, So it's getting to the real soft side of things, I think. It sounds strange for business, but it works.
0: Yes. Yeah. Well yeah. thank you so much Richard for inviting yeah. us today to this amazing office My and pleasure. giving us your thank time. You. Well, thank you. We know that you are really busy, <laughs> so we will <won't laughs> take more time from you. It's enough. Thank you so much. Oh well thank you. Appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. And and yeah, that's it. It was yeah. great. Thank you. <laughs> thank, thank you. Thank you for
1: your time for coming up
0: today. If you want to keep updated on the Korea Startup ecosystem, don't forget to follow us. And if you have any question or you would like to participate in one of our interviews, send us an email to koreastartuppodcast at gmail.com. See you next week.